0: All right, everyone, we are back with episode 70 of The Great Divide podcast. And let me welcome my co-host, Svein Hjordhug. Greetings, Thomas. How
1: you doing? I'm well. Uh, I woke up today full of anticipation and trepidation ahead of our discussion on this recorded work, so I prepared myself by getting up early today to spend some time in quiet contemplation whilst taking a morning stroll out in the wild, untainted, untamed Nordic nature, which lies outside my doorstep. But the air had a slight chill as it is prone to in these early throes of autumn. And as I walked in the light forest neath the mountainside, I noticed that the trees were starting to display the multicolored signs that summer is passing. And I felt a chill in my heart, like the start of the winter.
0: (laughs) That was quite beautiful. That was beautiful. (laughs) I spent my morning doing um, the sum total of my research for these podcasts that we are about to embark upon. And (laughs) I'm ready to go. But yeah, like you, I've been dreading it a little bit. There's a little trepidation, but uh, I'm I'm ready to dive into it. There can be so many puns with the whole dive into me thing. Yeah, let's just stop them right away. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to try to avoid them. Believe me, I don't like lazy jokes, so I'm going to try to avoid them if I – Lurch into one, it's just uh, by coincidence. Let me get that out of the way now. Uh, we believe you, <laughs> but this is episode 70, and who knows? It may be uh, 70 hours in the making of doing this series of podcasts. It could end up exceeding our Steeltown broadcasts. Who knows? Our piece in our time, which, which is the longest that we did? It was Steeltown, but is it still, still Steeltown? Um, in terms of hours. In, t- in uh, terms of ep- episodes, I episodes
1: guess. Episodes is uh, Steel Town because we had a round table. We had yeah. one episode just with speak pipes, We had four with Discussion. And didn't we <laughs> wow. have a setup episode? I don't remember anymore.
0: I I don't. But yeah, Steel Town I, I think would, would have been the most, but yeah. uh, maybe more hours on, on one of them. But this, who knows, this could exceed all of those because as you and I have spoken about, in, pre- in preparation for this, there's so much that we need to set up i think before before we can really talk about this album. We have to put it in perspective, not only in the mindset of the the band members at the time, especially Stewart, um, as far as the kind of music they were going to be writing and creating, but what they wanted from big country at this point in their career, what they what they were trying to accomplish, what they thought they could accomplish, um and just their general. Mindset leading up to this album because it it was a a, a different uh, approach I think than they had taken certainly with Why the Long Face which was more like a continuation of the Buffalo Skinners and now I think they were really with the with the commercial failure of Why the Long Face which really didn't didn't uh, piggyback at all on on the whatever success the Buffalo Skinners had I think they really got to a point here where they were going to reexamine everything so yeah. we got to spend some time setting all that up. And not just the band, also really the fans And
1: uh, on our side. Uh, we spoke about the role of the internet for the previous albums and how especially the Skinner's album for me was the first time I got to discuss it with a small group of fans online. And for a wide, long face, it just exploded with a larger group of fans and resources started becoming available online. But now with Driving to Damascus, the internet age was really there. It was truly established. The band had a website... We communicated with them on a bulletin board and we discussed and we were on top of things. And, uh, you know, Ian Grant was sharing a lot of stuff on, on the so-called membership site. And there were so many things. We knew so much.
2: We have so many of these emails come through and you say you have a very active website. Yeah, we do. We started the
3: site about a year and a half ago and it, it's really gone remarkably well. It's become a real... Uh, Focal, uh, focal, focal point for for fans of the band, and in fact, the funny thing about it is, is that uh, I've actually had messages from people I haven't seen since I left school. <laughs> they, they post up these messages on the board and saying, "Hey Stuart, get in touch," and oh. so it, it's really kind of uh, been a fabulous thing for us. You know, we we uh, use it to keep fans informed about gigs and what the bands are up, bands up to. Uh, we uh, do our merchandising through it, and it's really uh, it's really been a real uh, beacon for us over the past couple of years.
1: Really, this album was so communal and everything was dissected, you know, almost before it was ready to be dissected.
0: Yeah, it really was. And it, it, it was there were so many interesting firsts, I think, for this album that that happened. I mean, we had had. We we had the situation with the uh, Under Raps tour before Peace in Our Time, where the, the band actually performed songs before the album was released, and they wanted to try them out before an audience. But that being sort of a, a – before the internet and everything hit, it was really a while before any of us could hear those bootlegs. Um, whereas now with the internet and with this communal thing that you're talking about – and we'll talk about this a little bit later – but when the band started playing a lot of these songs some of us many of us heard them on live bootlegs for the first time so as you said we were already dissecting the songs before they'd even been properly recorded and wondering wow is this going to make the album this one definitely should or what is this and you know yeah. setting us all up for the inevitable disappointment of uh why didn't this song make the album why didn't that song make the album so it was kind of interesting because in the past we would we would get the b sides well after the fact and then we might think oh, wow, this, al- this song should have made the album. But now we, we knew the B-sides before they yeah. actually recorded the album. <laughs> we, were, so we, we were championing
1: changed. songs before they were properly recorded and before other songs that would be on the album was written. So we, we, had, uh, we had wars. Like, I, I was in this song's camp and someone else was in that song's camp. And damn it, how can you think that? You
0: suck. <laughs> I know.
1: Fun and games, of course. But uh, it's, it's
0: a totally new situation. Yeah, it really is, and and I don't want to jump right into those yet because we've got a, we've we know how much my co-host loves structure, and he's got a timeline <laughs> set up. So if I jump to when they were doing the bootlegs, it will only incur his anger.
1: I can I can tell that you have done research on those songs since you're talking about them and you're ready to jump into them.
0: No, I really I really honestly haven't. I just you know, my research is just twenty years of listening to these things. You know, it's like I, I do have to I do have to spend a little time focusing my memories and getting them into some sort of coherent uh yeah. format that I can talk about. But I mean, you know, I've listened to these things for so long and yeah. once I start thinking about it, it comes flooding back.
1: No, but it's true. It's uh, it's uh, You lived with an album so long, and that means uh, you have had many opinions, perhaps, over the years. And if I may, I'd like to just talk a little bit about how my opinion about this this particular album has changed over the years. Because uh, I-, I wish I could remember the moment I sat down and listened to it for the first time. For some albums, I can very clearly. While, while this one, I can't. And maybe that's because, as we said, we knew a lot of the songs before. So it had less of an impact when finally the album came because you knew the material in some form. But I know I never disliked the album. I know that I enjoyed it. I know it was never my favorite, but it was never my least favorite. It was a solid big country album. But the thing for me is when Stewart died, this was the album more than any album that bore the brunt of that disappointment and of that heartbreak. Uh, the well was poisoned, and this album really more than any other. And, and that was because of what it represented. And it was because of all of those things that went wrong over the last years of the band. Starting really with Stewart's move to Nashville, which ultimately wasn't a good move for him, despite the initial excitement. It was his marriage to She Who Will Not Be Mentioned on this podcast and the false fiasco, which we will talk about. The, the slight change of approach to their music, were starting to drink again, he disappeared, he came back, he, re- he was reported disappeared. Was he really not disappeared? Bruce announcing he was leaving the band due to poor financial return, then detracting his statement the next day, then Tony left. The band announced they would stop touring after they to Damascus commitments, calling it quits. It was a tough time to be enthusiastic as a fan, simply because it so clearly was tough for the band and it was tough for Stewart, and then he was gone. And what we were left with was this album that ended up representing all of that time, and everything that happened. And it might not be fair to the music, but it was natural because we couldn't put those feelings into Steel Town or Peace in Our Time or Skinners or whatever. Those were different times, different things going on. And those albums represent those times. But Driving to Damascus represents this time. And that, uh, for the longest time, made this album unlistenable to me and i remember someone back in the mailing list days after stewart had passed he said i can't listen to this album it's death music and i just remember thinking wow that's um, i
0: remember that too
1: yeah, yeah that, that was a quote that that struck me not because i disagreed so intently i actually knew exactly what he felt like because of all that i just said but um I don't know if I felt 100% the same way, but by far and large, I, I sympathized with that statement. But with time, I have gotten over those feelings. And um, as the years have hanged on me, I have gotten much more into this album than, than I did uh, back then. And today I probably like it more than ever. This is an album that did grow over time. And uh, not, not just the album itself, but the, the wealth of B-sides and there's so much material. And uh, if you take a step back from the shit, there was a lot of excitement too and the fact that the band was open the fact that they made all these website releases the fact that they were trying out live material before the album was out it's, it's really a cool thing uh there was a lot of good stuff too and you can focus on the good you can focus on the bad it's just at the end of the day just people and this is a very raw album in terms of uh people stuff
0: yeah yeah definitely it's funny. I I actually do remember perfectly well when I first listened to the album. Um it's the first big country album that, that I ever listened to with someone with me. Hmm. And uh and that was my now wife, Joni. We we uh we were together at the time. We weren't married yet, but uh the album showed up in the mail. She was happen she happened to be visiting with me and uh I remember we just sat down in my room and listened to the whole thing. And that was kind of cool. But the funny thing is that there was a problem with one of my speakers, and it was just it, it, the music was only coming through at, at, at like uh, maybe a third of the of the typical power in this one side of the speaker, and I didn't realize it until about the third song in, maybe even the fourth song, and um, I kept thinking while I was listening, it's like, "Wow, this, this is okay," but something's. It's, I don't know if I like the production of this album. <laughs> There's something kind of thin about it, and then suddenly I realized, wait a minute something's wrong with my speaker and i fixed it and then suddenly it sounded so much better and it came through crisp and clear but uh but yeah i mean as far as looking at the album in a in a sad negative way i mean there's there's no way that it can be avoided even to this day because you know lyrically especially stewart as usual with him he's painting pretty i don't want to say always clear but the the pictures he's painting lyrically are so personal and you know that they are happening at a time that's leading up to um his ultimate demise and whatever caused that and none of it good and so many struggles that he's going through in his life um at the time and when you look at it you can you can see how he, not only how he's struggling but what i found fascinating going back to this album and really paying attention to the lyrics and and looking at the perspective of his life and what he was doing, you can also see how he's sort of um, grappling and the things he's trying to grab onto to preserve himself, and especially Christianity and religion. Because I think Stuart Stuart was always a very spiritual guy, he seemed that way to me, but I don't think it can, it can really be argued that during this time in his life, he was at his most uh, spiritual and his most especially his interest in christianity
2: you also last year played the guitar on randy stonehill's number one christian record the face of god yes stewart are you a spiritual man um yeah
3: i'm spiritual uh, i'm not kind of into organized religion but i'm very spiritual yeah i believe there's a something out there greater than us all that that inspires me from day to day definitely
0: when he moved to uh to nashville and he became friends with marcus humman almost immediately. He uh, Marcus Humman's wife was a preacher in Nashville, and I know Stuart joined that church and was very big into it. And he, his I had some email discussions with him at the time because I had come from, a, from that background, and I was kind of in a searching phase as well, which has sort of brought me to my current day agnosticism. But uh, but back then, you know, we, we exchanged a little bit of, of our opinions on certain things. It didn't get that deep, but there, is, there are some things he wrote that I will share throughout the course of this podcast that I think are, is interesting. But um, he was very, very much into Christianity, and I, I guess that sort of— uh, supernatural love type of thing and you will you will see that throughout these lyrics and you can you can see him sort of grasping at that to maybe try to preserve himself and to help himself to overcome the demons that he was struggling with um and ultimately it it wasn't enough but um and that kind of makes the whole thing difficult too because you can you can see how his life is crumbling with some of the personal things he talks about you can see how he's trying to almost like a drowning person reach out to grab something to hold himself, to keep himself afloat. And then you ultimately know that the demons won and you know, the demons won in the end as, as far as you know, his, his, at the end of his life story, obviously they didn't win as far as his legacy goes. I think all of us will refuse to ever let that happen. But sadly with his, his time living, he, he ended that time because he succumbed to those demons and it, it, it's impossible to really separate this album even now with all these years behind us um, from that. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's like something like Steeltown. That was, all the albums were poisoned for me after he died, but at least I can go back to Steeltown, The Seer, Peace in Our Time, and I can think, well, he was at a different place then, and I can just not think about the. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's know. what I mean. That they are separated from all the stuff that happened, but the, the entire world well was poisoned for a long time, and there's no denying it. Shit!
0: Before we get too deeply into the subject matter of the album, let's let's do the timeline thing, and um, I'll I'll set you up here because, I mean, the first thing that I knew uh, as far as Big Country doing another album, and of course, you know, Why the Long Face came out in 95, and uh, we all have mixed opinions about it, but I don't think anybody really strongly dislikes that album. Maybe there are some, you know, some of us love it, some of us think it's okay. I love it. I know you do. We were all waiting for what they were going to do next. And I think we all kind of sensed that something was going to change because there was so much hype for Buffalo Skinners. And whatever you think of the album, Why the Long Face, commercially, it just didn't live up to the promise that the Buffalo Skinners hype machine um, you know, justly created. So, uh, I mean, the first thing that I noticed was in 1996 in the Country Club and that's where we go back to. And thanks to JFG as always for keeping his great um, archive of material on bigcountryinfo.com. But the first thing that I read was new, hot, the hot news system in Country Club. And it said Stuart is planning to do a Celtic album with Carol Lawler. And he's also get, getting ready to go to Nashville and he plans to do a solo album in Nashville. And I remember thinking, wow, that is unbelievable. You know, a Stuart Adamson solo album. Do you remember when that was being talked about and what kind of you were what your thoughts were of that?
1: Yeah, I was excited about it. It's very interesting to see what, uh, what that could lead to. I don't know if I had any expectations about what it would be. You know, it would have been perhaps more American roots and singer songwriter oriented
0: at the end of the day. Well listen to this description that was in the country club and I I can't make heads or tail of this description. So I I don't know if you I don't know if a Norwegian, you know, no offense will be able to either but since this is coming from American country music but the, the way they described it was they said he's working with someone named Randy Scruggs who I think he ended up playing some guitar on one of his tracks or something. But it said Stewart's solo album is expected is expected to be more a male KD Lang rather than Lyle Lovett type album. Hopeful for autumn release. <laughs> so, what what that means, I have no clue. A male Katie Lang, rather than Lyle Lovett type album. Okay. Thank you for that meaningless description. <laughs> they were popular
1: names, some of those, in the 90s. If you're going to compare yourself with
0: someone, do it with someone who is reasonably popular at the time. <laughs> right, yeah. And, I, and even, you know, I know I'm kind of familiar with some of their stuff, but... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's odd. But Stuart later will go in and explain. He, he later explains what he hopes to achieve with his country album. But, uh, and this, I think, puts us in a good frame of mind for what Stuart is thinking as far as big country. He says, as far as more big country recording is concerned, that will happen in due course. I feel that we need some time to regroup and revitalize our recording career instead of recording for the sake of it. We have been together for 15 years so far, so I don't feel there's any point in rushing the next record. And then he says, "Um, the album with Carol is still in development. We have been writing songs and jamming together. I will finish my own project first. Hmm. And he, he continues by saying, this is the last part, he continues to say, the majority of my country record is written, and I'm just waiting for the right people to come together to finalize the recording, hopefully very soon. It's difficult to write down a sound, but it will be more country than folk. That's why I want to work with American musicians. I want to bring a twist and a punkier edge to it. So that's at least a little (laughs) bit better description of what he was planning to do. And I remember reading that at the time, and like you, I was like, well, this is exciting. Maybe this is what the band needs, a a break, Stuart to do a solo album. And country music was never my forte, but I was kind of, I think I mentioned this other brand of country that I've talked about called Alt Country in the past, and I was getting into that, and it's kind of what he just described, like country music, but with a twist and with a punkier, rockier feel to it. So I thought, well, that could be really fascinating
1: yeah for sure no it's uh, it's interesting that description I don't know what to make of it so I guess being Norwegian doesn't help (laughs) but uh, the solo album was talked about for so long and it changed its nature many times because after a certain point the Lola thing was never talked about again and then um, they did uh, take a break in 97 so at least that held true they took some time off to focus on their own projects or take a break from each other and do other things and um, and Stuart obviously relocated to the US. That was a big thing. And I see that really as the start, the proper start of the driving to Damascus era is Stuart's move to the US. It really starts defining what he is going to do, whether it's inside or outside of big country.
2: You mentioned the magic word Nashville. Of course, you live there now.
3: Yeah, yeah, I moved there a few years ago. Uh, I'd been going there to, to write In between the the intervening period when when we came off the road with Big Country, and just kind of fell in love with the place, loved the whole songwriting ethos thing. Uh, It's it's amazing for me to be part of such a a creative environment, you know, because obviously I lived all my life in Scotland previous to that, and and you're really kind of writing yourself up there, you know. Um, And I went to Nashville and just couldn't couldn't believe that the the amount of writing and playing that goes on, It's, it's unbelievable.
1: The solo album thing, I can't quite let it go. He he did go over there to uh, to record a solo album. He did get together with Marcus quite quickly. He wrote with many people. Uh, some of them ended up in the outtakes. I don't think any of those. Uh, I see no other writing credits on the actual album than than the band members. Uh, thank God, I guess. Uh, but uh, the album came and, and went in, in phases. And it's interesting that the first thing he would record was actually the next Big Country album. The solo album didn't materialize until 2001 with uh, the Raphaels. So that's, um, that was a delay. And I remember emailing with him and asking, how's it going? And, yeah, 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 it's soon coming. <laughs> so, so, and that, that was always the thing. It, it, it's coming soon. Uh, but um, yes, as, as we look into this timeline, really, he wouldn't have had time because so much big country related stuff was going on, even in 97 that I'm sure that's why it never materialized. Because if you look uh, at the timeline and start properly, and uh, I'm glad you provided some 96 glimpses because I started at 97. I thought that was far enough back for an album that came out in 99. But uh, it's, it all ties together. And this is such an interesting period in any case. But they took a break, Stewart moved over. He moved to Nashville looking for a fresh start, a new inspiration and, and this fabled solo project. Uh, Ian Grant went over there with him and helped set him up and I'm sure had a hand in uh, getting him connected with Marcus.
2: You said the first person that you recorded with when you went out there was the guy that's just written the two songs for the Dixie Chicks.
3: Yeah, the first person I wrote with was Marcus Hummin, who's since become a very good friend. And uh, him and I actually have a kind of little acoustic project uh, that we do together out there. It's all uh, fiddles and mandolins and penny whistles and stuff and and yeah, I sat down to write with him and he was the first co-writer I ever did and I sat down and, and watched him play and listened to him sang- singing and went, oh my goodness, I better brush up here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, he's a he's a hugely successful writer and a really, really sweet person too.
2: Am I right in thinking, until you went to Nashville, you'd always written on your own? Um,
3: well, with the band, yeah, uh, but pretty much all, all, all by myself, yeah. All the, the uh, lyrical stuff I would do myself and Sometimes we would jam music with the band and uh, get songs that way. Uh, sometimes I would turn up with with, with full songs, but I'd, I'd never sat there and co-written with anyone until I went, went to Nashville for the first time.
2: So obviously this place is quite magical and has unlocked a door for you somewhere. Oh, it's
3: fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's been very beneficial to my songwriting too.
1: And as we know, while he did that, Tony founded Great Western Records, produced several Cornwall-based artists and released The Great Unknown, which we deep dived on a while ago, uh, Bruce did the Wild Blue Yonder project with his brother on drums. Bruce likes to keep it in the family. It's a, it was an interesting project. And Mark went touring with The Crazy World of Arthur Brown and also did an EP with them. Uh, obviously, of all these things, the significant change is Stewart's relocation. Uh, and despite the perception that 97 was mostly time off, the first demoing session for Drum to Damascus actually happened that fall. So uh, there's no specific date on this other than the second half of '97, But they got together in the mainframe studios, which is located in Nashville, and demoed five tracks. And they were the first five tracks to be added to what would eventually become a large pool of material to pick from. And tellingly, none of these first five tracks ended up on the album. Uh, but several of them are known from uh, B-sides or website releases. And these tracks are Between the Sun and the Shadow. Living by Memory, Don't You Stay, I Get Hurt, and Birmingham. Several good songs. And uh, if anyone wants to listen to these, these are the five first tracks on Rarity 7. So uh, the five first tracks on that is the main firm session from 1997, quite neatly collected there. Uh, Going into ninety-eight, Stuart is now comfortable enough to play his first solo gig after Big Country. It's probably the first time he's been alone on a stage ever that I'm, I'm aware of. Uh, February 13, he played at the Douglas Corner Cafe in Nashville. Uh, I don't know anything more about this. It would be very interesting to hear what he played and what
0: uh, I'd forgotten what all about like. that. Yeah, I've totally yeah. forgotten about that. I know he played there with, uh, with Blue Heeler later. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And, you know, the thing about Nashville, too, is that, and I'm sure that he's, he was feeling this, is that so many of the, the singer-songwriters there, they, they just do that. They, they'll just go out because it's, because it's everywhere. I mean, they'll just go to a club play a good way to keep their chops up try out some new songs so yeah i'd be fascinated to know what he played who knows maybe it was some of those songs that made that demo session i wouldn't be surprised if it was not
1: denounced nobody knew and he just did it and whoever happened to be there caught it so <laughs> very under the radar that one but next month already in march the second demo session for driving to damascus happens and this is in uh, england at stains bridges studio this time they demo six more songs. So there's a lot of songwriting happening. And if he is planning a solo album on top of all this, then he's writing a lot of songs. And he probably was. He was very inspired in the first time in Nashville.
0: No doubt. And, and let me just take a quick step back. Uh, another thing from uh, Country Club in March of 97. It says, Stewart has written 15 songs and is back in Nashville for his fourth visit, continuing to work on his solo album. Wow. He has been co-writing with country musicians Vince Melamed, never heard of him, Marcus Humman, and Bruce Sedano. So even even then, it says he has written 15 songs, and he's continuing to work on his album. And that, that sounded like 15 songs on top of probably others that he'd already written. So it's interesting to note, to think what those songs were, if any are things that we've never heard, if they're stuff that actually made the Driving to Damascus album or or what.
1: Yeah, that's actually a, a great topic for some future private investigative uh, podcast to, to go and find those demos that he went over and did with those people.
0: They must exist in some form somewhere, but tightly guarded. Exactly. And and he also, um, in 97, uh, in October, he says that he settled on a name, Blue Healer, with Marcus Hummond. He decided he was going to form a band with him and he called it, he said it was going to be a Crosby, Stills, and Nash type of outfit but they don't have any other uh, musicians yet. But so apparently <laughs> the, the whole thing with Marcus was really starting to, to, uh, to take root here. That happened very early. Yeah. One other quote from Stuart that I think is worth mentioning, and this came from the first 1998 issue of the Country Club. Um, Stuart wrote a letter that was printed in Country Club addressed to Jan, who was uh, doing the Country Club at the time. Jan, wherever you are, uh, hope you're well. I'm trying to track her down and and can't, so I hope everything's well with her. But anyway, uh, he says, Dear Jan, sorry it's taken me a while to reply. I've been pretty busy out here with the big country stuff and working with Marcus Humman and a few others. I moved out here just over a year ago. I came here initially to write with other people in town and just fell in love with the creative atmosphere. There are literally artists and songwriters everywhere you go. I met Marcus the first time that I visited Nashville, and we immediately clicked. I was originally thinking about doing a solo record, but writing and performing with Marcus was so right that we decided to do kind of an art house folk music project together. We've only done a couple of shows, but we have a ton of material ready to record. The music itself is a real acoustic blend of folk, country, Celtic grooves. At present, we have been using musicians from from around town, so we don't really have a settled band, although we, we may be close on a few. The BC material is coming along fine, and I'm just about to leave for another demo session. The first two sessions have been great fun, but I want to get a bit wilder with the guitars in the next few sessions. I hope we will be ready to record for Rio in the summer. It has been a joy to be working with the band again, and I think that the time off will will prove to be well worth it. Um, I know we're already looking at doing some shows in May, so it's back in the saddle for us. Marcus and I were going to call our project Blue Healer, but some band nicked our name. Tony was pulled over. He talks about Tony being pulled over, which Tony shared on us the last uh, in the last episode. It, actually, he wasn't pulled over; he was pulled out of a out of a um, cafe or a restaurant he was in. And Stuart, Stuart laughed and said he really did look like the guy. LOL. <laughs> 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 and the main thing I took from that was like uh, people were actually using LOL as early as uh, 1998. So, oh man. Anyway, so that kind of brings us up to speed on what happened with the solo album. You know, he he was planning on doing one. He he met Marcus Humman and it turned into that project. But in the meantime, I guess he was decided he would take whatever he was going to do with the solo album and refocus that energy into a new big country album.
1: Shit! We were up to March 98 with uh, with a proper timeline. And that is the second demo session for Drown to Damascus. And this is in England. So no uh, arresting of anyone there, hopefully, at uh, Stan Bridges Studios. And this time they did an additional six songs, so uh, more songs are flowing. And this session includes the first two songs that actually would end up on the album. Uh, That is Grace and The President Slipped and Fell. Uh, Additionally, they did Cimarron, Sleep There Till Dawn, Second Time Around, and Loser Will. And five of these demos ended up on Rarity 7. So track six to 10 on CD one, you can listen to uh, all of these except Second Time Around which was left out, likely because they didn't continue to work on that song. And this is the one song in the session that didn't become a B-side or didn't end up on a website release. Uh, but it is on YouTube. So if you still haven't heard it, go to YouTube, search for Second Time Around. You'll hear it there.
0: The other thing about that song that might have prevented them from, from putting it out is that there's, a, there's some sort of interference in a portion of the song that they never were able to fix. I think they got like a a version of it. The version that they got had some sort of weird um, distortion interference in the second verse. And I guess they'd never had access again, or they lost the master tape or something. Because I remember years ago um, hearing that song and trying to help someone fix that. And uh, it, w- it wasn't really fixable. <laughs> So that that could have been a reason too that that was never released. But that's a that's a good song. You should check it out if you haven't. For sure. That takes us to April, April tenth, ninety
1: eight, is when Stuart Adamson and Marcus Hammond perform at the Cafe Milano in Nashville, and I believe I'm fairly certain of this that this is the first time that Stuart and Marcus performed together, and uh, as as we know they've already worked together almost a year, given that session you mentioned. Uh, early 97 so it's about time i guess <laughs> that they uh, actually go and do something live that they might have they may have done some undercover gig similar to the first stewart one that isn't captured anywhere but this is the first documented appearance together so that's
0: what i'm assuming they probably did do some shows together that were you know under the radar yeah. and i remember that show they said this is the first blue healer show because that show actually exists on video so yeah uh, exactly so.
1: Yeah, so uh, at this point, I mean, the the solo album that we're talking about, it's been taking many hues and shapes and forms. And uh, at this point, he's uh, pretty clearly going for a project with Hammond. And he talked for a while there. I have a quote from this time, from the same month. He says, it's the first time I ever lived in a totally creative community and the first time I have ever co-written with other artists, which is pretty much said in what you read before, but uh, he's happy. I think the first time in Nashville was happy. I think also it uh, turns out at the point, but not quite yet, it seems like. So still uh, still very creative. Still clearly a lot of songs been written for all kinds of projects that uh, he was planning to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... uh, that takes us to, yeah, the end of April, April 27th. It's hardly worth mentioning, but just because it's the weirdest compilation CD ever, Kings of Emotion is released in the UK. The the compilation <laughs> CD, it's a two-CD compilation, and it's almost entirely wide-long-face and eclectic.
2: Yeah,
0: so. yeah. Very strange. I was reading in, in uh, Country Club, them talking about that, and apparently it was... Uh, Ian Grant, I don't have the quote in front of me, but Ian Grant was really upset with that release. Apparently he was working with that, whoever released it, and he wanted um, he wanted them to hold off releasing it for some reason, and he wanted to include some other stuff, some demos, some more rare tunes. He wanted Stuart to uh, write liner notes for it, and he was asking them to delay the release of it for some reason that he had. Uh, but he was very angry because he said the label just didn't didn't follow anything that he said, Re- released it anyway with this track listing. And I think Ian's words were, I hope it sells zero. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I, so the band wasn't happy with that no, release. I can imagine. And uh, Ian's way of taking revenge is to uh, slightly one month later release Restless Natives and Rarities as, as a much right, more right. interesting uh, compilation that probably had a lot more of what he hoped to do with uh, that one. So maybe... For us fans, it worked out uh, the best in the end. I think it did. Uh, but before then, we have May. And uh, May, uh, Tony Butler released the One Day to the Next Single on May 11th, a single to benefit uh, ME awareness. And after that, we have a Blizzard tour. They played uh, nine dates across England and Scotland on what they dubbed the Restless Natives tour. Um, which is interesting because it's kind of, it ties together with the release of Restless Natives and Rarities, but that came out after the tour was done. So I don't know if this is the usual big country planning or if it's uh, totally independent uh, two events. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the significant thing about this tour is they included material from the demo sessions we talked about. And uh, I will zone in on one particular gig of this tour, the sixth date of the Restless Natives tour. Uh, that was May 25th at The Lemon Tree in Aberdeen. Uh, and at this gig, and this is significant, we'll, we'll probably both have a lot of things to say here. They played six new songs, uh, of which two would end up on the album. That is Grace and The President Slipped and Fell. And they also played Loser, Will Sleep There Till Dawn, I Get Heard and Living By Memory. All of these songs come from the first two demo sessions. So these are songs they have worked on, they know them, and now they're testing them out. And these are significant because I think this was the first time for most of us that someone taped these songs and made them available for people on the Big Country mailing list to download, to check them out. And we all did. And we said, wow, new material new life stuff i can't believe this it's like manna from heaven or something which and so we downloaded i mean pretty good quality and that was the first really taste of the driving to damascus era big country stuff so how did you feel about that when when you saw that become available out of nothing
0: oh uh manna from heaven is a great way to describe it I, it was it was fantastic i mean uh we like i said to you before we started recording the, the Under Wraps tour was, I guess, the first time the band really did this, where they played a bunch of songs they were working on live before the album was formulated. But the thing is with that is that that was pre-internet days, so there were bootlegs made, but the only way they were going to be shared was among people who were mailing them to each other. So it really didn't get out in any kind of circulation until many years later. But this... Was really the first time probably a lot of us got to take advantage of of the the new technology that was sweeping the world, the internet, and hear these songs and download them very soon after the gig itself. And uh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. I'll, I'll never forget hearing those for the first time and making. Um, I had a I had a CD recorder, I think, and I I recorded them onto the CD, and it was all such new technology and. I would go around listening to that CD in my car over and over again and thinking about these songs and tearing them apart and dissecting them and wondering which was going to make the album and hoping some would and, you know, just wondering what the final production would be like. And it was it was exciting. It was exciting to hear songs that way for the first time. I still have my burned CD in the shelf. Nice. It's a very... Uh important part
1: of really being a fan at this time because this was so uh, so important and we we would be spoiled in the coming years by uh, website releases and we'll get into that soon but at this point we didn't have that and at, even more significantly at this point the restless natives and rarities hadn't been released yet we were not blessed by a lot of rarities and no. uh, and and even b-sides was was hard to find all of them so and, and here we have live tracks of their stuff. I don't think we can underline how fantastic it was to get these and how out of this world it seemed. Oh, it was a great time. Yeah, f- fantastic. And not just, uh, you know, it was shared with everybody. So everybody grabbed them and it, we all discussed them. And it was very positive, very positive reception to all these songs. And yeah. um, I, I, I love them too. And I think um, we have to probably give some special mention to Loserville because that was by far the song that made... The most people were yeah. uh, excited and uh, especially the quotes that we got from, from the band on the bulletin board. And I forgot who said it and in what context and the exact date, but it was – at an early date said that this song would be one of the cornerstone songs on the album that would point out the direction of uh, the material. Really?
0: Oh, I don't remember that.
1: Yeah. That was a quote that was early on. And as we know, that definitely didn't happen wow. <laughs> probably because the material mostly went a different direction. So it was, um, it didn't even fit the album in the end. But uh, yeah, you can say that it, uh, the, it, the, this was by far the most popular song. And in my opinion, This early version of Lemon Tree is also the best version of the song. I agree, Um, yeah. Yeah, there's something about it that got lost in translation to studio. I think um, primarily it's more energetic. It's a little less energy in the studio version for some reason.
0: Well, they they tried to, uh, and we can talk about this in more depth at some point, but yeah, they they truncated the studio version. Uh, They tried to make it shorter they cut out some verses the the original version was was a traditional big country epic i mean it just built and built and built it was a slow build and i think they tried to shorten it and edit it and tweak it in the studio and and for some reason that that's rarely worked out well for big country songs especially if you if you hear the versions that preceded those types of experiments but yeah i remember hearing loserville and i just i was just blown away by that track i just thought oh my gosh and i you know my Love of Native American culture and that kind of thing, and my interest in that is—I've talked about that a lot before on the show. But so to hear that, it was very strange. For one thing, I was like, "Wow, Stewart is writing about Native Americans, um, and he's writing about them very knowledgeably with with, with plenty of uh, with plenty of knowledge, and he, he clearly understands the subject that he's talking about." And I thought that was really interesting. You know, this guy from Scotland uh, is so becoming so entrenched in American. Um, issues. So uh, yeah, I I love that song. And it's interesting, you know, you read that quote and now I do kind of remember it after you read it, but I totally forgotten about that. And boy, what, it, what a different album it could have been if that had been the cornerstone, maybe it would have even been called <laughs> Loserville, you know, who knows? It's the type
1: of song that could easily have led the charge, uh, you know, but um, obviously the album developed very naturally. So what they ended up with was what they felt like writing. And uh, I wouldn't have an album with Forest Loserville, so to speak, but uh, this is the song and the direction that could have been, and that's uh, that's uh, that is something to think about.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's so different. You know that that song is so heavy, so heavy. I don't think Big Country has ever been heavier than that, as far as just. If there's one thing lacking for that song with me, it would maybe be like I, I was missing a great Stuart Adamson solo in it. There was some sort of one on a, on the live version, but not on the studio version. But just yeah. the chords of that song are just heavy, heavy chords, and then you get like so many other tracks on "Driving to Damascus," which are definitely not in that vein. Although there's a little bit, but uh, yeah. anyway, I'm jumping ahead. But um,
1: no, but it's it's hard not to. I think since we, we spoke so much about this song, and not everybody might have heard the live version, let's play it now. Okay, we'll be back in twenty minutes. <laughs>
4: Where the styrofoam rolls She hits the trail That's the charity store To the cavern
0: So that was Loserville, and that's the first time, really, most of us ever heard that song. And so at this point, we were wondering about the new album. What, what's it going to be like? And we were getting a taste of it. And I think as we move forward in this timeline um, into ni- late 98 and into 99, we, we're getting an idea of the band's um, sort of mindset about a new album. And I think this one quote from Ian Grant that came in 1998 uh, about the album really gives good perspective on what they were thinking. He said, this album will take as long as it takes. It has to be the best yet. So I think Big Country was almost at a a, a crossroads here. They really were. It's like, are they going to continue down the path that sort of just release an album with a label like Pure, uh, who did Wide Long Face and Hope for the Best, or are they going to really try to consolidate their forces and do the best thing they've ever done? Build back again on that Buffalo Skinners um, hype and, and success that they had. And obviously, they want to try to do the best thing they ever did every time they record an album. I mean, that's always the mindset. But I think in their minds, maybe they were thinking, you know, our time as a band may be getting short if we don't really do something big. So let's try to refocus and rethink what we're doing, take a new direction if we need to, experiment a little bit. Um, try different things, see what works, because the next thing we do has got to be gigantic for us. And uh, so I think it's interesting and, and important to keep that f- frame of mind in perspective as we continue with this and as we continue into the creation of the album itself.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, I, I was just reminded as you read out that bit, uh, Ian had um, a page where he presented himself as a manager. And part of that page had... The goals he had set he put them out there, and number one on the list was to break big country again in america he uh he had high goals, but you shouldn't have any less goals if you're playing around you know you should go for for the throat, you should push for the top, and I think as he said those things, the words you read out that was in the back of his mind that were going to do better than white long face and even better than uh than skinners they were going to really go for it because he felt they had it in them and they probably did and they needed to find a way to get it out so uh, the more on that shortly actually <laughs> yeah they were um, very close <laughs> they were very close they did um it's worth noting three days after the restless natives tour concluded stewart and marcus played a show with uh, special guest uh, Marky Mark Berzecki on Bungus, performing at the Borderline in London. So Marcus was over in the UK and probably saw some of the Restless Natives tour and was there on hand. So that's interesting. And then uh, June 1st, Restless Natives and Rarities released in the UK. And it was a UK-only release, but I guess all of us found a way to get it. And that was another landmark thing. Uh, A week after we got the Lemon Tree songs, we have... B-sides of uh, all flavors, lengths, and notions, and for many of them for the first time. Yeah, 98 was really shaping up to be a very rich year as a big country fan. Like things would come out and things would happen, and quite interesting things too. So, um, yeah, the restless natives things that that's a whole topic in itself. But the first one has the B-sides. Uh, Not too many outtakes, there's actually a couple, but uh, the remaining ones in the series focused more or went more into the outtakes. Uh, And I've been trying to keep tabs on the seventh one in terms of the demo sessions. And this takes us to the third demo session for the album. Happened in July, July 6th, and that was at Ray Davies' Kong Studios. They recorded three new versions of demos they had already done. A second version of Loserville, a second version of Cimarron, and a second version of Sleep Till Dawn. This is the first time the title had been shortened down from Sleep There Till Dawn. Now, these demos are in the vault. None of them are uh, included on Rarity 7. And interestingly, it's the first version of Cimarron that is used on uh, in the Scud. So these three demos they re recorded, for some reason, they really went nowhere. And none of the tracks were album tracks either. So that's
0: a peculiar kind of session. It was more than just Ray Davies' studio. At the time and I'd forgotten about this until I was started researching some of this again but Ray Davies was actually interested in signing Big Country to a label that he was a part of um it it's it's printed here in Country Club as Velvel so that's why they were at the, at Ray Davies studio was was he was interested in them and uh he was he wanted to possibly help sign them so we'll talk more about this later as we get to the Ray Davies tunes but I remember reading that at the time and thinking how strange you know Ray Davies being part of signing Big Country <laughs> to a new record deal, yeah, but I yeah. but I was glad because I thought, well, he's such a big name that that can only help them. He like, has a um, huge
1: pull, um, at least at at that time, it's very huge. And uh, the Kings had just uh, retired from active service. The last thing they did was in '96, so so everybody was kind of like, what is Ray going to do now as the as the big star from the Kings? And uh, Big Country was on his radar, but like you said. Um, more on that when we get to some of his songs, because otherwise this timeline is going to be super bloated. And we would we avoid that at all costs. Not like it isn't already. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, now it's only, you know, Maybe partially bloated. bloated. Yeah, exactly. By the way, did you, did you say Ray Davies had a huge poll or a huge poll? Probably both. I can, only
4: watch, I can only watch for one of them.
1: I'll, I'll let it lie while you're interested okay. in that and move on. <laughs> you can put up a poll. And uh, you're the poll master (laughs) of this duo. Uh, All right. So that's July. And uh, Big Country played in Dublin, Ireland on the 10th and 11th of July after this uh, Ray Davis session. And then they uh, took a bit of a break for the summer, which takes us to July 25th. If I can add a personal point, I actually got married on that day. Nice. So in the middle of all this Big Country activity, I had some things going on my own as well. And the first big country news that broke after I was married was that they were going to support the Rolling Stones. And this uh, is a big thing for them, clearly. And they did it uh, back in the wide-long phase, too. They they did a big haul with the Stones then. And in August, they played again first with them in Tallinn, in Estonia, on the August 8th. Uh, and then much later in the month, they picked up again and played uh, around Europe. Interestingly, between these dates, August 8th and 16th, they sandwiched a fourth demo session for "Driving to Damascus" in the house in the Woods Studios, a studio that uh, gave us many good B-sides in the especially Wide Long Face era. And this time they did six more songs, and you can uh, tell that they're now in a bit of a Stones mode. The first uh, song is "Bella," which definitely reeks a bit of uh, Rolling Stones, and they con and they continued with "Ages of a Man," which uh, is a song we have talked about before as Strangely being included on Peace in Our Time. It definitely belongs here in August 98, House in the Woods. Uh, and also Perfect World, See You, Fragile Thing, and Your Spirit to Me. Which means that five of the six songs ended up on the album. So now they're really cooking in terms of material they, uh, they felt was uh, strong enough and, and the direction they felt like they wanted to go in. And all of these songs, by the way, can be found on Rarity 7, as track 11 to 13 on CD1 and 1 to 3 on CD2. Yeah, getting serious about their writing, they did these songs and jumped back on the Stones tour, which took them out to the end of August.
0: Yeah, and let me me add a little uh, footnote to the Stones thing. Um, Another thing that Ian says, he says, um, talking about how good the Stones tour was, he said it was a massive boost to motivation. And one more, one more session in Nashville in September left them with close on thirty songs. So uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> that is true. If you keep the tally of all the sessions that we've gone through, they, they are approaching that. They had three more demo sessions for *Drive to Damascus* that happened over the course of the autumn of '98, and I don't have specific dates. I just know the order in which they happened and the general time span. So the fifth one would have to happen in September, simply by. Uh, you know, how the time plays out, somewhere between September to November. And the fifth one, mainframe in Nashville, five more songs, I'm on this train, dive into me, without wings, this blood's for you, you want me to go. Uh, And all of these can be found on Rarity 7, S-Track 4, 6, 7, 8, 9 on CD2. And these were all new material for these sessions, but only dive into me made it all the way to the album. But uh, three of these songs made it onto the first website exclusive release that the band ever did, which was in the scud which was released just a couple of months later in january 99 so that was an interesting release we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to that time
0: Yeah, and there we have another new set of songs i mean it's
1: just amazing they keep coming and just uh, in october i'm kind of putting loosely october on the next batch they did five more songs yeah and then they had john wayne's dream trouble the waters Drive to damascus daystar and medicine show You'll only find Trouble the Waters and "Drive to Damascus on uh, Rarity 7. The other three are resigned to the vaults, at least in these versions. But uh, the third and final demo session of the fall 98, they went back to House in the Woods for that one, and they worked on four songs. A second version of "Drive to Damascus, a second version of Trouble the Waters, plus Devil in the Eye and Somebody Else. The Ray Davis songs, in other words. And all of those can be found on Rarity Sevens, And that ends the, the flurry of demo sessions for the time being. They do have some last ones uh, a bit deeper into um, or closer to the actual album session. In December, there's another show by Stuart and Marcus on December 4th on the Bongo After Hours in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, Bruce releases another one, Wild Blue Yonder, the Faster at the Speed of Sound release out through the official B Country website. And that takes us into 1999. And Marcus and stewart it's probably not worth mentioning all the times they play. They play at the Café Milano again, January 2nd. Uh, These performances are still one-offs. There's no tour, no series of gigs. They just seem to do them whenever they want to. But on January 16th, that date is used by JFNG because that's the first date that someone has actually received this. That is the In the Scud EP, released via the official Big Country website. And that really starts the era of the website-only releases, which there would be so many of throughout 1999, 2000, and really beyond. And through the 2000s, we got all the verities that way. We got many sessions, and <laughs> In the Scud and Bon Appetit, and uh, all of those. I'm, I'm sure you have all of them. Oh, yeah, of course. Yep, still have them. Shit! This takes us to January 25th and 26th. And this is the point where it's been documented that Big Country once again went to North London, strongly presumed Kong Studios, Ray Davies' studios, for the next uh, album to prepare. It's been called a demo session. But uh, I've seen no proof that they actually recorded demos. I think they spent these days zoning in on songs, having clear candidates for what should go on the album and just honing in on that and tightening stuff. I think that's what's happening
0: in my guesstimation. Well, here's what Ian says about that. Okay. He says, um, after the Stones tour, he says, Ray and I were still talking. He took some interest and came to a few rehearsals and we met at Conk. Um, he was having trouble with Velvel or Velvet, whatever that is, his U.S. partner in a new venture who were going to fund 50% of a big country deal. Um, he says the months. Well, this leads us to the whole fact that you know track records came in. But basically, he says that um, according to Ray Davies, th- and this is interesting. And we'll talk about this as we get into those songs too. But Ray Davies said he would he would wanted to be involved with the band, um, and he heard some of the sessions. But he says he thought the songs were were okay, but they weren't quite there yet. So and then later they met at Conk, but it, it's interesting that Ray Davies was commenting on the quality of their material and saying that he didn't think, quote, he didn't think the songs were there. But anyway, so I don't know if that if that meeting you just mentioned at Conk was recording or if it was just the band rehearsing or meeting with him to talk about a possible deal or what. But yeah, I don't know what exactly happened there either. But at least Ian mm. gives a Ian gives a little bit of info as to them definitely meeting there at some point to discuss the possibility of Ray Davies um, having something to do with signing Big Country to a new record deal.
1: Yeah, he definitely did. And uh, the name of that uh, label, by the way, is Velvel. But uh, yeah, Ray was definitely involved. Uh, I don't know really the timeline of his involvement, but uh, he attended many rehearsals with them. And uh, he was very likely there if they went to Conk. That was a likelihood why they would go to Conk. But this is getting um, closer and closer to the actual album recording time. If new songs sprung from those sessions, they definitely weren't on the album because at this point they already had all the songs in some demo form. So that's why I feel it's likely more tightening of songs and making them better, making improvements to them. But, But who knows? I can't say. That's just how I feel that. That, that is more likely than new demos at that point.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're yeah. right. And and he does go on to say after that that that's when he mentions Ray saying the songs weren't quite there and suggesting that he and Stuart write in New York at his house or his place. Yeah. So That was a little earlier uh, because they had already demoed uh,
1: at this point Devil in the Eye and uh, somebody else. If you go back to the, the seventh demo session, which happened in November – or it might be borderline december that 's when David and I and somebody else go uh, shows up december 98 so it 's shortly before but uh, really, what makes me suspect that the session uh, in January was tightening up of songs is that shortly after just a month later, the second of March, they actually begin recording the new album and this happened at Rockfield in Wales uh, with the Ralph
3: McKenna.
2: Let's talk about the album, Driving to Damascus. It was recorded in Wales. A Scottish band recording in Wales?
3: Yeah, I've recorded at Rockfield before. It's one of those classic uh, rock and roll studios. Uh, did the second Skids album there, in fact. And uh, it's just a great environment. You know, you're out there in the countryside. There's nothing to distract you. You get on with your music. And hopefully uh, I hopefully get to go back there again because I really like the place.
1: And that goes on throughout March. Uh, the only thing of note, really, which has nothing to do with the recording of the album, happens on the 15th of March, which is that Stuart had a narrow escape from a fire uh, in the building next to his tapitoris pub in Dunfermline. So he, he barely got out. <laughs> so that was uh, quite dramatic and got them probably more pressed sadly, than in years. because everybody wanted to write about that. But uh, at some point during March, Big Country move from Rockfield to Manau Valley to continue recording there. And mixing begins on the album April 11th, done uh, late May. Big Country perform five songs at uh, the Scotland for Kosovo concert at May 31st. And then they are starting to a rehearsal. And uh, the year is moving quickly along here. They play lots of gigs in July throughout that month. And they start having... Um, Radio appearances, or on the 29th of July, Tony appears on various best country radio stations, and on the 30th, Stuart appears on London today at noon. Uh, that takes us over to August, and things are getting ready. Now, on the 7th of August, Stuart and Eddie Reader is on Radio 2 with Billy Bragg plays uh, some songs acoustically and has an interview.
5: I'm joined now by Stuart Adamson of Big Country and Eddie Reader. Welcome, folks. Hello, Welcome. Bill.
4: Hello. It's
5: nice, nice, to, uh, nice to see you. So uh, you've recorded a new album? Yep. Uh, yep. Dri- driving to Damascus?
3: That's right, yep. It's due to come out uh, in the middle of September. I don't know how many that is for us. I have no clue. I've, I lost count. It
5: says here,
3: I think. Is that all? it says here? it was more than that. No, I think so. I'll check up. So what's the
5: difference between um, living, growing up in Dunfermline, and living in Nashville? What's the, What are the main differences?
3: I just, I really like the songwriter community thing. I'd never been involved in that before. Obviously, I grew up in a tiny little coal mining village in Scotland, mm. and it was brilliant. I had a great time. Uh, but it's not exactly like loads of other people sitting around to write songs with right. me. And I uh, went out there and started working, writing with people. And I'd never really done that before—that sit down face to face someone mm. and lay yourself naked and write a song with them. So I was really, really nervous the first couple of times I did it. You know, I was going, to, "I'm going to get found out here. I'm mm. going to know that, I'm, that I, I can't do this." But I just wanted—suddenly, it certainly appears that everybody writes songs the same way, just like the whole community thing—and decided decided to go. You know, and, and being amongst it. So I spend a whole bunch of time if I'm in between big country stuff, just writing with other people and doing occasional like acoustic gigs mm-hmm. and stuff. And, I have an acoustic project there with a guy called Marcus Hummin, who's written a whole bunch of big hits for people, hit number ones with Tim McGraw and Winona Chard. Right. This is your upcoming 8th studio album. Yep. It seems like a lot more. 8? Yeah, you sure like what? Frank Sinatra? Hardly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I actually thought it was more than that. It's not really... Well, maybe it's live albums. And yeah, I, I think there's a bunch and of live stuff. albums. Yeah. Eight there and then three with the Skids too. So mm. yeah, I mean I'm really pleased with the record. The best thing about the new record for me is it's it's really song driven.
4: Mm. Most
3: of the songs I can just take and, and play with an acoustic guitar yeah. and, and they really work from that point of view, rather than being kind of instrumental based, yeah. things, which we've done a lot of in the past. You know? Yeah,
5: it's more it's very very. I mean I, for me the Skids and Big Country as well to the same extent were one of the great guitar bands of the of the 70s and 80s in Britain. I
3: think. Well as a guitar band and I I, I just like the guitar. You know, I mean as a 12-year-old kid, I saw Led Zeppelin playing the mm. Caird Hall in Dundee to like 1,800 people and from that night onward, I never wanted to do anything else but mm. be a guitar player in a rock and roll band, you know. But you're a very distinctive
5: guitar player, Stuart. Oh, I mean, fantastic. I always thought, I mean, it's not, you know, there's no, uh, and no one else who actually kind of makes those camps, it's whether it's with the skids or with big country.
3: Yeah, it's, it's kind of, I, I grew up, I first learned to play folk and, and country music, mm. the first things I learned to play. And all those melodies kind of stuck with me, so mm. when I came to actually play electric guitar, I didn't have any lessons or any, anything, so when I, I learned all these kind of Celtic melodies would come out, and then I had this way of playing with an mm. open str- drone string, like how yeah. you play the pipes and stuff.
1: <laughs> and this takes us to the date. August ninth. Fragile Thing is released as a single in the UK in three formats. We know really what happened, and I we have a lot to say about this. I'll lead in a little bit i will lead us up to the actual release and what happened then because they had a lot going for them just to give the punchline first fragile thing charted at number 69 on the uk charts it drops out of the chart after just one week that was not supposed to happen this is a major backlash the trouble with the plan as the song goes so many things were set up for this to succeed prior to this release the single was a-listed by radio 2 There was a lot of promotion in press, in media outlets. Uh, It had been nearly four years since the last single. And there was a new internet age now that hadn't been there to the same degree before that fans in a a much more accessible internet age could share their anticipation globally, which we did. And it was the biggest buildup to a big country single since the 1980s. So the CD single, which was planned, a limited edition CD single and a 10-inch vinyl were chosen in various formats for this important comeback single. A radio edit was mixed, trimmed almost a minute of what would be on the album to make it fit within uh, the required standards for a CD single, which was quite stern. They had B-sides. They had uh, they chose I Get Hurt, John Wayne's Dream, Dust on the Road, and Lucerville to spread across these singles. And uh, everything was kind of ready. But they had a campaign set up. I remember this back in the day. They said, if you live somewhere else and want to buy this single, place an order. We'll go and buy it for you and send it to you. And I remember getting a package in the mail with the two CD singles in an HMV bag with the receipt inside it. So I definitely, <laughs> oh, wow. I still have that. I, I joined it in on that. Uh, that was just part of the whole big campaign. They did everything they could
0: to have this do a uh, good charting in its first week. Well, and let's say real quick who they is, too, because we, we sort of skipped over this, and I think it's important. And that is the record deal that Big Country ended up signing was with the reform track records, yes. which was being run by Ian Grant and a guy named Bill Kentwright, um, who's someone who had worked with Ian in the past. And what, we mentioned the Ray Davies thing. Ian says that, that uh, it was just kept dragging on and dragging on with Ray, and they couldn't get the funding figured out he says he was given permission to he was offered not i think he had to pay for it but he was offered the name and logo of the of what he calls the legendary track records by one of its founders and so he took it and he formed track records again reformed it and that's when they they eventually got uh Rafe McKenna involved in the recording um he said he ran into him he produced for some other bands and he had already worked with Eddie Reader Um, interestingly enough, there was, there was a mention also in the country club of Steve Lillywhite being considered for this, whether he would have done it, I don't know, but they, they chose, chose Rafe McKenna. Um, but yeah, let's remember that this is track records. So this is a record company that's being run now by their manager, by Ian Grant, um, for the first time. And in fact, he says about this for the first time, I held the destiny of the band in my own hands and set about setting up a team to work with. It's been pretty cool so far with a lot of work coming our way. Now that was before this debacle that we're talking about. So this is track records. And, and as you rightly say, they, they were getting a lot of word out to the fans through the internet and through the country club. In fact, um, Ian says this about Fragile Thing before it was released. He says, we must chart high with a single and hope that you are able to dig deep and find the pennies to purchase all three formats in week one. So yeah. they were hoping everyone would buy all three and, yeah. So anyway, continue.
1: Yeah. Now that was good because it's, uh, it's it's key to this whole thing, which we'll get into. The record company and management are the same, which is all kinds of conflicts of interest. They're supposed to negotiate with each other so, <laughs> to get the best stuff. But be that as it may, uh, certainly the record company and management would be 100% aligned in getting this release out there. So there, there could be hopefully something to be gained for that. And uh, the fact that the single was A-listed by Radio 2, this is the crucial thing. Uh, I can't uh, say with certainty the last time Big Country had an A-list
0: single. It would be the mid-80s, I I would assume. Can you explain what that is to those who might not understand what A-listing means?
1: Yeah, A-list and and B-list. It's something to do with how often the song is featured per hour in uh, main programming. So when it's A-listed, it means it's one of the featured singles. It's played very often on radio. Uh, I can't uh, speak to the exact frequency, but this means that uh, the radio is actually pushing it. So that's amazing in 1999 that the main radio station or one of the main radio stations in the UK is pushing big country. Uh, So then we come to D-Day. The single is released and uh, everybody likes it. And everybody immediately noticed that one of the CD singles is looking a little bit different. It's uh, our case...
0: Can you try to explain this? <laughs> I've heard it described as origami. Uh, I posted a picture of it today on our on our Facebook page, the Great Divide page. I still have it. And, um, yeah, it's it's strange. It's, it's like it, it's a normal case. It looks like it from when you first pick it up and buy it. It's almost like it's been – I think it was like taped down with a sticker. And when you remove the sticker, it unfolds into this sort of box-like look. And you're looking down into – the the case of the cd that's holding the the cd itself it's it's completely useless i mean we'll, we'll talk about the idiocy of the rule you know definitely in in what happened here but the packaging i don't i don't understand why it was in there as as far as i recall there wasn't anything in the package other than the cd there was no like poster or anything that would have necessitated the need for this kind of weird packaging but it, it was yeah. folded up, basically. And the word folds is going to be very important here because it turns out there were too many folds. <laughs> too many folds. Yeah, you needed to fold up
1: each of the side of the the, the, the thing that looked like a square box. Yeah. So there were four folds that you needed to – and then you had a box with the hard-to-get to get the CD at the bottom. And the, the, the this is so unique. I've never, ever seen another CD single look like this. And uh, on uh, on the big country group, through a big country, there has been – Kind of a countdown of singles, each and every single in big Country's catalog. We've been discussing them chronologically, and when we got to Fragile Thing, I threw the question out there: Has anyone ever seen a single that looks like the Fragile Thing one, with all the folds? Uh, I think it's unique. I think it was designed for for that single, for that purpose. And uh, I have yet to hear a single person who has seen any other CD single look like that. It's uh, it was clearly designed uh, as something fancy for that song. Uh, hiding the song inside the song is called Fragile Thing and it's hidden in a box, it's cute uh, I don't know if I would uh, give give them that thought that it was that thought through uh, who knows, certainly other things weren't thought through because uh, I don't even know the names of all the, the bodies or the authorities deciding the charts in England but after the week it came back that this single was disqualified from counting towards charting because it had too many folds.
5: Uh, Big Country and Stuart Eddardson there with Eddie Reader from Fairground Attraction on backing vocals. That song was set to be Big Country's first big hit in the UK for ages when it was banned by the powers that be of having too many folds in the cd packaging unbelievable really paul weller suffered the same fate with his last album heavy soul when he had one too many postcards and twenty thousand copies were ignored by the sales department meant it didn't go to number one it went to number two sad world really when you think about it
1: so the too many folds thing it's it's uh, an expression that we still mention and uh, it's, it's uh, one of those things that it's kind of funny, but I'm, I'm primarily pissed off. I think it's a, it's a fucking disgrace. And uh, you can be upset at many reasons. Number one, number one you can be as upset about the reasons given for this, that it's too many folds. Um, I guess there was something about it might be used for a purpose other than storing
0: the CD. And <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't know what purpose that would be—storing peace in it or whatever. It's. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, and I'm 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 holding it open, and as it's open, it you could almost imagine it being used as a a completely unstable cardboard box for something that you don't care about to put in there. Right. But 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 the thing is, is that it doesn't stay open. You have to literally hold it open. It, if you let go, it just folds back onto itself practically. So oh, that's a feature, yeah, it, not a bug. It's yeah, it's useless. It's, yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's totally, it's kind of cool looking, but it's totally useless. It's you know, it's too bad. It, too
1: bad is, is putting it very mildly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, you, you can be upset at the actual reasoning behind disqualifying it, right? It, because um, the single wasn't banned, it was just sales were pulled off and that pulled it down to 69. And obviously, it was gone, all the momentum was lost. So the whole thing that the work done to A-list the single, uh, the internet campaigns to have people worldwide buy the single from an outlet in England, it didn't help. It didn't help in the end. It was, it was all wasted. So yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous reason given. But having said that, these rules are known. And uh, someone should have done uh, the job to make sure that these things wouldn't happen.
0: Yes. I, yeah. And, and let, me, let me read something here. Uh, that kind of goes along exactly with what you're saying. And, and again, this comes from the country club right after this happened. And this also cites the first instance of the famous too many folds phrase and it comes straight from Ian Grant himself. So what I'm going to read is a t- tiny bit lengthy, but I think it's important in the in light of this discussion. And this is Ian um explaining what happened. So let's let's read this and then we can, you know, figure out where we want to throw the blame or most of the blame, I don't know, but he says it's a big story, long and quite convoluted. I don't expect any of you to completely get it, because I don't. CIN monitor the charts on behalf of BPI and Millward Brown, who published the charts. As you know, there are three formats permissible for the singles charts. There are various rules. No more than 20 minutes, only three songs, and the A-side has to be on both. You can include postcards and posters, but you must not have more than a single-fold sleeve. So he seems to know that. I got an email on the Monday night after Fragile Thing was released from Pinnacle stating that CIN would not be including CD2 sales in their chart computations. Why? Too many folds. I was astounded. The team, when told, was astonished. Too many folds? What's the problem with them and why the ruling? You mustn't try to get the buyer into buying it if the package can be used for something else or a major part in influencing them to purchase. He has in quotes, rules are rules, you know. Ricky Martin had one second over 20 minutes on his CD, but we allowed that because no one will be persuaded to buy that because it had an extra second. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. How come you can give away posters and postcards, yet they are not perceived as an enticement? If rules are rules, why wasn't Ricky Martin's single banned? Well, there's an organization called CSC, Chart Supervision Committee, and they are made up of six people from the industry. Paul Berger is one of them, and guess what? He is also chairman of Sony, and Ricky is on Columbia, owned by Sony. Um, He says, we considered cutting out the offending cardboard bits, even those that were in the shops. Why were we told on the Monday of the release? Why not the week preceding release? After all, they had the singles. We could have changed them. Why the stupid rule in the first place? Why not be considerate to a new label and warn us about that next time? If the stores under-ordering and some not taking any with the reorders, not getting in-store quickly enough was not bad enough, the stores, well, HMV in particular... Withdrew both copies of the CD by mistake. We were on course for top 40. All stores I spoke and went to, over 20, said the singles were flying out. Sorry for this story. It all sounds far-fetched. It's insane that they would not include the sale because of the cardboard folds. Ian Grant. So, he tries to give some sense of what happened there. And and by what he said, we do do see that he wasn't aware of that particular rule, and I guess he's kind of giving the, the excuse that since they were a brand new label, um, they weren't aware of all these rules. And I can understand that, you know, to a great deal. But as you also say, as the guy in charge, man, with, with a single this important, as we've already made, made clear, why even take a chance? Why even do anything? Don't just release the song in a format, you know, it's in a regular format. It's just, man, what a shame all around. Yeah. It's not like I disagree with a
1: lot of what it says. You no, know, obviously, is the rule stupid? Of course it's stupid. Is it uh, in, inconsistently uh, managed? Yes. You know, exceptions are given here and uh, not there. Uh, could they have done the new label a courtesy and told them? Of course they could, especially if they had the single early. But uh, that doesn't free the label slash manager from the main responsibility of being aware of that ruling. Uh, it's, uh, you know, if this is where it gets tricky, because the manager and the record label is the same, because they could point to each other. <laughs> you can't do it here. You can't, you can't, the argument would be somewhere between them, but here is the same place. So uh, I don't know. It's uh, 20 years after this happened, I, I kind of don't have really the energy to to play a, a blaming game. It's it's kind of done, but it's. But
0: uh... well, we can't underestimate what this did to the band. Exactly. And even in our talk with Tony that we just had, I, I remember when he brought that up, it was almost like opening a fresh wound because he said he gave even more clarity as to what happened. He said they were at a record store signing, and the news came in that uh, this happened, and that they weren't going to chart. And he just said, you know the the whole, all the air was just sucked out of them. It was like they'd been punched in the stomach. And, and we know that, had, that it affected Stuart. It's been talked about many times. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's just... not the first time I've heard that story, and that just confirmed it. I mean, he, he, he
1: could tell where they were. Of course, he'd remember that. Where were you when the folds came down or something like that? Uh, but um, it's such a shame because especially as you say, that was the end right there. That was the beginning of the end after that the air came out of it it's um, like the album came out and we'll talk about how that charted and how that performed but they started going on a tour and the wind went out of the sails and as we'll hear they announced they would cease touring after their to Damascus commitments not too long after the the, uh, the the speed between album release and announcing of the end was really astonishing and uh, nobody can tell me it didn't start right here
0: Oh yeah. It it ended before it even began. So just how depressing that must have been. And the one yeah. the one the one quote that I have from Stewart about it after it happened, he says, um about the CIN's response that rules are rules. He said it's like a district town council or planning department response. Pure rule book red tape. Is this how the business of music should be run? And it said railed Stuart Adamson today. So Yeah, yeah it, it it hurt. It hurt him.
1: It hurts. Uh, I mean, uh, it it hurts me to talk about it, and I, I can imagine how much it hurt band. I, I was just so pissed off, and I'm I still feel anger towards this. I I let the, never mind the quality of the song. We haven't even mentioned the song "Fragile Thing" yet, which I think is. Uh, You know, we often talk about how this song or that song should have been the single instead of the song they actually picked. This is one of the times I totally agree with the single choice. Yeah, me too. I totally agree. And I think it's one of the best things they certainly did in the 90s. And it's one of their best songs uh, ever. I really like Fragile Thing as a song. So never mind, you know, what happened. And then you have a song like Fragile Thing, which um, even if one single... Didn't count. Should have been good enough for people to just understand the genius on on that single and on that on that song. But that's the other thing, and that's just people's taste. And how can you compete with you know one big country single against everybody else is counting too? You're kind of uh, it's an uphill battle. It's kind of a miracle it charted at uh, was it's sixty nine? Yeah, it was sixty nine. <laughs> Well done against everybody else sending two
0: singles against your one but uh, yeah. it's uh, it hurts. And as I said it, what's even more amazing is that a lot of the shops were so confused by this last minute directive to to pull that version of the single that they ended up just pulling both of them. Yeah. So so people couldn't even buy the the version that would have counted in many shops. So I mean, man, it just it just stinks. And and I really do. But I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight and and we talk about the Live Aid moment and all that but um Arlen Bartels, I saw a post that he had on our page today, and it kind of made me think the same thing. He just said, he said, when this happened, I really started to think that maybe the stars were aligned against this band. And it just really felt that way. It's like, because this really was a great way for, in my opinion, and we'll talk more about it when we get to the song, but a great way for Big Country to come back on the scene. They had this female singer who wasn't known in America, but... Apparently it was fairly known in the UK, and they had an yeah. really interesting new sound, but it still sounded kind of like big country, and it was a great catchy song. And man, it just must have killed them. Yeah, really. Uh, there,
1: there, there are so many what ifs uh, surrounding this thing, and who knows how far they they would have gone. And uh, it's not like world domination was at their feet, probably in in either case. But do we need the slaps to the face? Do we need it? It's, it? It just gets too much because it's not like the first time I feel big country has been uh, shafted or sort of victims of various injustices. But this is by far the worst. And uh, it uh, never mind that it's self-sabotage really at its finest. But it's uh, just so unfair and uh, such a shame. And what
0: do they have to respond to this with? See you. <laughs> uh, uh, don't make it worse right away but
1: uh it's uh i mean i i want to mention also something to really illustrate the all the stuff that was going on around the single that helped pull it this, this is something that was posted by by keith trainer uh, he was listening to radio 2 at the time the richard allenson show uh, he had Emma Bunton, as I guess, she was a Spice Girl, and the Spice Girls in the 90s—you can't get much hotter than that. Then they—they they were the shit. And uh, they, he asked her to pick her five favorite songs of the moment, and number one on her list was "Fragile Thing." And she went on to explain just how she thought it was an incredible song of such beauty. And uh, Richard Allenson himself replied, "It's a stunning track." And he went on to say how much he loved Big Country and thought this was possibly the best track they've done. So, um, just stuff like that—they were, they were mentioned—and uh, if everything had pointed the same direction, if everything had been as it should have been, who knows? Who knows Did they really had some momentum that was killed, killed in its tracks. And that's um, that's how that's, that's the only way I can put it.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't I don't sit here and think that you know a fragile thing had been released the way it should have been released and charted the way it should have charted that big country was going to become gigantic superstars. I don't think that would have happened, but I, I think it would have been great momentum for the album. It, it would have given them a platform they probably hadn't had in years and they yeah. would have done really well. And I think it would have really raised their spirits and and made them a lot more excited about uh, what was to come and maybe given them more of a hope for the future and something even more to build on. So Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It would have been a platform for
1: the 2000s right there. Yes, yeah. And I'm sure we would have seen them in the two
0: thousands. Yeah. And and I think we can already tell by leading up to all this that Stewart's heart was really drifting from the band in some respects. I mean, he wanted to he went to Nashville, he wanted to do a solo album, he was working on a Celtic album with Carol Lalo that ended up never happening. But he was already in mind having all these other projects in his head. You could you could see that he also was feeling that way, but he was drawn back to Big Country. He wanted to go do another album, but the fact that it worked out like this must have completely you know it, it well I mean it did i mean we we got the final fling shortly after this, and uh it must have just and and in my opinion that whole tour seemed like someone just going through the motions with Stuart, but um that's for another discussion but uh i I just think it it probably destroyed any real excitement he had about the band at that point to see that the that kind of business practice which was like in Monty Python as well, and rightly so by Ian Grant, um, can, affect, can affect your music in that way. It's just, it's sickening. Yeah.
1: And it's kind of uh, reflected by the timeline here, because uh, like I said, this single was released August 9th. And according to the timeline, this is when Big Country appears at Tower Records in Glasgow, which is what Tony said for the autograph session. And after this, nothing is going on until the 29th. So they had a 20-day timeout after getting this news. Um, Pulling themselves together at that time to perform at Key 103 Mardi Gras for Piccadilly Radio in Manchester. They're starting to do the obligatory media blitz. But this is sort of, you have to separate the pre-Falls Fiasco to the post-Falls Fiasco. You see it quickly. It's a different thing. Maybe the hearts weren't quite in it or you, you lost heart. But you still had the album launch and that came in September. Um, after a couple of TV appearances, they appeared on VH1 Talk Music on the 3rd of September and on the, where are they now on the 7th of September, the kind of show you never want to really be at because then you're someone from back then. Um, uh, but on the 8th of September, we got the second website release. We got the Bon Appetit EP and got some fantastic songs. I mean, Birmingham is, you know, everybody loves Birmingham. And Living by Member is one of my favorite songs from these sessions, along with Son of My Shadow and uh, what's the last one? Oh, don't you, don't you Stay. Don't You Stay, exactly. Yeah. So um, that's the last one before September 27th, Driving to Damascus released in the UK. So the album's out and uh, yet more media blitz. It carries on through uh, October, where Stuart appears on October 1st on Nevermind the Buscocks, UK television show. And then on the 22nd, they appear on the Weekend Watchdog on BBC One. They also appear on the television show Popped in, Cashed Out on ITV. I have no idea what that is. I assume you don't either. But for the UK listeners, don't you remember that one? Wasn't that good times? Um, On October 25th is when the second single appears. The CU slash Perfect World double A-side release, released in the UK. And uh, there are more signing sessions happening through October. Uh, And that takes us to December when they have gigs, actual gigs, several months after the album release. They do five gigs in England, five in Scotland and one in Ireland. Uh, The gig on the 8th of December in Newcastle City Hall is recorded and later broadcast on BBC Radio 2 uh, in February the following year. And that really takes us really um, into the year 2000 and quickly we're getting out of the driving to Damascus core time. A couple of just key dates, uh, but um, the timeline is really over as I see it. On the 20th of January is when Ian Grant officially announces that he has resigned as Stuart Adamson's personal manager. He continues to manage big country. But this was a sign of someone trying to do something to cause an effect. And I think we all know what that was. Uh, In late February or early March, Stuart marries she who will not be named by me on the show. And in March, Drown to Damascus is released in Germany slash Europe. A strange way of writing it as Germany is part of Europe. Uh, This is March 27th. And that's a very interesting date because that is to the day exactly six months after it was released in the UK. That's a freaking huge gap. So I don't know what uh, the plan was to release this and try and do a cohesive campaign. I mean, they barely played UK. They um, certainly haven't played anywhere else. And um, in April, they released the Nashville Sessions on the Track Records website. And they do five gigs in the Netherlands, 13 gigs in Germany as part of the drums of Damascus. But in the middle of this, on April 6th, country officially announced that they will stop touring after completing all the drum to Damascus touring obligations. So that takes us back to what I said, pre Too Many Folds and post Too Many Folds. A lot of time is gaps between activities and uh, I don't see anywhere near the same effort that we've seen some of the other album launches and how they prepared. I think the wind went out of the sails after the folds thing and uh, they wrap up with with the final fling tour in May. Yep. So yep. uh, the whimper of the drum to Damascus era is May 29th, 2000, when Somebody Else is released as the third and final single from the album in the UK.
0: Wow. So that's that's officially then the final single that the original band ever released. That it is. <sighs> Boy. What a way, huh? And,
1: uh, <laughs> if, uh, and that single, yeah, the third and final single, it uh, charted at number 126. And according to the Alan Glenn book, the sales was exactly 647 copies. My goodness. Yeah.
0: That's amazing.
1: It was released so long after the album that it really seemed like an afterthought.
0: Yeah, it did. I mean, what, I don't know what they expected to achieve uh, releasing that. I guess maybe they just, you know, wanted to get a few more uh, sales of something. But um, Yeah, it yeah. was kind of uh, released
1: as part of the last hurrah, more than as part of any album
0: effort. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, the the one thing um, that they did do here that we we also should mention is the Nashville show that they played in, in America. Yeah. Because that was, that was their last show um, ever in America for the original band. And that happened on July 9th, 1999. And it's funny because um, when was the Fragile Thing? Hap- when did that happen again? The debacle? What was the date of that release? Fragile Thing was released on August 9th. Okay. So this is before that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's... It's funny because that show. I was just sitting here wondering if it was before or after the Fragile thing happened. Turns out it was before,
1: and you can see that.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say because they were so they were so excited, they were so happy, and they had just actually filmed the Fragile thing video there in Nashville as well. That's part of the reason why the band was there, and um, yeah, it, it's. It, I remember just seeing how excited they were, and and for me to to hear a lot of the songs that would be on the album um live before I heard the actual album and for everyone who was there who were big country fans it was it was a real treat and i think we were all really excited about the album because of just the raw emotion that it was played with and the songs themselves i think which came across really well live um but yeah it, it's it's really interesting to wonder you know, or to, or to see that kind of excitement and then to – I wasn't there, obviously, but to imagine the the disappointment that must have come because you could tell they were really amped up for that release. And I remember talking to Stuart a little bit about it before the show, and I think we had heard Driving to Damascus at that point. I know I had heard it because I mentioned it to him and how cool of an idea I thought it was, and he was excited about it and smiling and laughing and – um. You know, the one thing I did, I getting back to the Loserville thing, I, I remember asking Tony, like, are you going to play Loserville tonight? Are you going to play Loserville? And he said, no, we've dropped it from the set. It's just too long. <laughs> and I, was, I was so disappointed. But uh, at that time, I thought maybe Loserville would still be on the album. I don't know if a track listing had been released yet, but. I remember
1: that we were all very surprised to find it at the B-side.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so that was a big moment in America. And I remember them at the time, too, saying, uh, talking to Bruce, I think, at the time, because I. I had that this giant camera with me that I used to film the show and after the show we were sitting with them and talking with him, and he saw that camera and he's like are you making a documentary <laughs> and I said no no but maybe I should um but we talked a little bit about America and they were all like uh Stewart actually wasn't with them which was kind of interesting he he played the show and then left um I I assumed at the time it had something to do with the fact that it was at a bar and and the, the after show um, vibe was everyone sitting around and drinking beers or whatever and I, maybe he didn't want to be a part of that or just wanted to get home for other reasons I don't know but um, they were talking very much about America and how America was really big on their on their plans they really wanted um, to come back to America and this didn't want this to be their last show obviously in America just the beginning and so I think they were really that's another reason they were really counting on Fragile Thing to do so well because it, a, a big success story there would have made uh, an American deal more palatable to a record company, and hopefully a tour and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's it's a shame, but uh, at least I can say that I saw them at the at the height of their excitement, probably for the for the album because it was just yeah. about to come out, and they were they were proud of it, no doubt. And and everybody's
1: grateful to you for that because by you taping that and standing there with a big ass camera on your shoulder the entire <laughs> evening, the rest of us can uh, enjoy that show and, and we do so on behalf of everybody thank you for doing that Hey, no problem I
4: love Nashville <laughs> I've had a great time here I haven't finished yet you <laughs> <I went to> like a rock and roll star there, it was great I
3: love it here too and, um, I came here a few years ago at a period of big change in my life, and I'd like to publicly thank Marcus Hummer and his family for making my transition here fabulous. Thank you, Marcus, wherever you are. I hope God smiles on you at all times. You're a fabulous family. Love you. The last uh, couple of days we spent out and about in Nashville and the surrounding area, sweating our arses
4: off in that heat. Arcee's is uh, kind of Scottish for the butts. <laughs> yeah, <it's fine>.
3: so, <laughs> whereas funny in Scotland means something completely different altogether.
4: Yeah, it means
3: mean your front bum.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh my
3: goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and they said comedy was dead. You're in the wrong place, mate. You should be up the road at Zany's.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, fucking Zany bastard,
4: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I hope you all know what shagging means. <sighs> it's the best dancing I've ever done, I'll tell you that much. I'm a pish dancer, but I'm a good shag. <laughs>
0: I found some photos, by the way, I've been waiting to release them for this uh, for this um, discussion. So uh, over the course of this podcast, uh, this series of shows, I'll probably put them on our page. But just some some photos I found from that night. And I think one of them actually shows me holding that camera. So you'll finally be able to see (laughs) just how big that thing was and that I wasn't lying. (laughs) You know, I swear I've seen a photo of you with that camera. Okay, maybe maybe it's been out there before then. Maybe Joni put it. It's since, a while someone... ago. I can
1: tell. It's it's not recent. It's not it's not while we did this podcast. It's longer okay. ago.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to know. But yeah, that was that was a great night. But uh, yeah. Mm. So anyway, so that uh, that takes us up to the the release of the album. Should we just should we start diving into the the. Um, Scene of in 1999 at the time of its release,
1: yeah, let's do that. What what beat it on the charts? What, what was the reason this album didn't or the single didn't do better?
0: <laughs> well, I've got the U.S. charts in front of me, okay. So, um, the week of September 25th, 1999, is the closest that I can get here. Now, this is all kind of a moot point for the U.S. because the album wasn't even released here, but it's still you know, the, the taste in music is always interesting to look at. In relation to these releases. So number one, the number one songs of that week, I don't even remember a lot of these. Unpretty by TLC. Can't think of a note of that song. She's All I Ever Had by Ricky Martin. No clue what that sounds like. Bayamos by Enrique Iglesias. Oh
1: good lord. Don't you have <laughs>
0: anything? <else? laughs> here's here's one at least I remember. Genie in a bottle by Christina Aguilera. Summer Girls by a band called LFO. No clue. Mambo number five, which was horrible, by Lou Bega. Smooth by Santana, featuring Rob Thomas, was number seven. All Star by Smash Mouth. I do remember that song. Someday by Sugar Ray. I remember that. And number ten, Where Are My Girls At by 702. So a list of absolute crap. Good Lord, man. (laughs) <laughs> the world needed fragile things. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? I mean, what garbage! Yeah, talk about it. So, it's fine, found the UK list and sent that to me. Here, here's that, and I'm going to probably do as great as I did with bras on some of the pronunciations of these names. <laughs> At number one, we have a song called "Blue," and in parentheses is "Dabadi." <laughs>
1: oh, a parentheses song.
0: Yeah, "Blue Dabadi" by a group called Eiffel Sixty Five. Number two, we have S Club Party by a band called S Club Seven. Here's one I at least know. Again, by in number three, we have Man I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. Number four, we have Mambo. Number five, again. Number five, we have You Drive Me Crazy by Britney Spears. That's a number six.
1: Paddle.
0: Yeah, number six, we have Sun Is Shining by Bob Marley. I'm not familiar with that, but at least it's Bob Marley. I'll to Bob for now. <laughs> yeah, really. Number seven, we have We're Going to Ibiza by the Venga Boys. <laughs> number eight, we have The Launch by DJ Gene. Number nine, we have Get Get Down by Paul Johnson. And number 10, we have Mickey by Lolly. I think I have... we should just
1: take all these bands and sign them to track records. <laughs> what the hell, man? UK, US, it's all the same. It's, it's utter garbage.
3: Yeah. This is the
0: worst top 10 of any time period we had. There's no no doubt. And what's interesting, too, is that really there's nothing rock in any of this stuff. The closest you get is like Smash Mouth from uh, the U.S. release. So who knows? I don't know how how well some of the sounds from Driving to Damascus would have done anyway on some of these charts. But Uh, I don't know.
1: If this was what was in vogue, then Big Country had no chance. And thank God.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? They, they were hoping to chart in the top 40. So let's see what's, what some of the songs were up a little bit higher. We've got David Bowie at number 16 with a song called Thursday's Child. We've got Sting at number 20 with a song called Brand New Day. Um, we've got uh, uh, the, the rest. That's the first looks, one I know, actually. The rest looks like crap, too. Let's go, <laughs> to, num- let's go to number 40. We've got... Uh, Tell Me It's Real by KC and Jojo.
1: KC <laughs> from the Sunshine
0: Band? I don't know. It's K-C-I, so I don't know how oh, you pronounce okay. that. Okay, you're breaking up again.
1: Yeah, my mind is breaking up. Hang on. Shit! All right. Well, enough of that crap. God, <laughs> I can't believe that. That sucked all the life out of me.
0: Yeah, it really is is kind of pathetic. I I agree. That
1: was hopeless. So <laughs> so uh, just to, to set us up before we dive into the first song, and that was not a pun. That was no pun intended. Uh, but we we call this dive. Damn it, we've been diving for five years. <laughs> uh, we uh, we must not forget the uh, obligatory reading of the Tony Butler comments. Ah uh, yes, do so from from two thousand six. Now sadly, uh, Drive to Damascus was the first album he commented on. So that was quite short compared to any other album, but we do get a few glimpses of what he thought when he listened back to this in uh, October 2006. Uh, So he said, I listened to this CD for the first time in years, I put in the gym, and I was pleasantly surprised at how good it was. Each track has high value. Driving to Damascus should have been a single, but could have done with a more powerful mix. Lyrically, Somebody Else is superb, and all the other tracks rock and pull on the emotional strings. Great songs and playing. A pleasant revisit. Forgot to mention my love for you spirit to me. Remember Stuart writing the lyric and him asking me what I thought. The track that is on the album is inspirational. And then he adds uh, another section one day later. Uh, how do I feel about listening to stuff now? Well, this is the first time since Stuart's passing that I have really wanted to listen to our music What I intend doing is listen to an album a week and write a comment on here. So this is what spurred him to write for all the others, but uh, they became more lengthy than this one. Uh, What I did was I reached out to him and said, hey, we're going to do Drive to Damascus. He agreed to do something like this for us, but he's on vacation this week, so we'll get it to read at the end, I'm sure. Oh, nice. Very cool. Good. So uh, Awesome. That's it. He he clearly is very fond of the results, which... uh, I don't know if that really counters some of what he said to us, that he wasn't super keen on the material at the time. And uh, I guess he had a lousy time with being arrested and stuff. I'm
0: sure that impacted some of his emotion around it. But, I, was uh, say, I do remember him saying that he was pleased with what finally made the album. Yes. And I, think, I think his problems were initially a lot of the songs that didn't make the album, because they really were much more in a country vein. Yeah, a, a bit more like that. So... Uh, Unlike albums like
1: Peace in Our Time, where he was pleased with stuff, but not with what ended on the album, here we have the opposite.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, so we've gotten all the really, I think, negative vibes and difficult things, at least the the biggest ones, (laughs) out of the way as the the preamble to this album. And probably uh, as we've done that, you can see why we've been sort of approaching this one with some sense of dread or trepidation or whatever you want to call it but uh, it's a tough album but what do you say are you ready to to start talking about the tunes
1: I think so I think now we can focus more on the songs and maybe here and there we'll relate to something we've spoken about but we we can focus on the songs now and that I I I hope that helps after five hours of uh, setting things up
0: Cool, definitely. All right, well, let's, let's, let's crank up the engine of that cool car that they were driving, and let's get into it. One, two, three,
4: four. I was driving to Damascus when a sandstorm rose and the axle froze. I was low on gas and lower on hope. I covered my eyes and I felt for the rope. The wind was howling and the air red stung. That you need when your heart is smuggled Like a demo, You're gonna find them when they fall And it was not hard to make him out He simply spoke while I had to shout He asked me, where are you driving, child? His voice was clear, but his eyes were wild. I said, I'm going to the city to meet the high and proud. Let them know that anger is the nature of the crowd. He said, love them all. All that you need when you're hugged is small. Your words are lost on the dead When you belong to them Once I was dead and I knew the words Of those dry and hollow men Then he took the rope and he hitched me you need when you're is smuggled like them out. you're gonna find them when they fall like them all all that you need when you're is smuggled like them all you're gonna